Well, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and today's message is entitled, David's First Mistakes. If you've been with us, you know that King Saul is the very first king of Israel. But because he rebelled against the Lord, God promised, I'm going to take you off the throne, Saul, and I'm going to give the throne to somebody else, somebody who's better than you, a man after my own heart. And that's when we read about young David being secretly anointed as the next king of Israel. But this was a secret anointing. This wasn't a public declaration to everybody. So David knew that he was going to be the next king, but he's not king yet. Right now, he's still serving King Saul. In chapter 17, God used David to kill Goliath, giving Israel an impossible victory because of God's power. And then things were going pretty well for David and Saul. But then in chapter 18, the new hit single was released in Israel called Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul didn't like that song. It caused him to grow extremely jealous and bitter. Saul became so paranoid that he might lose the kingdom, lose the throne to David that Saul tried to kill David. Not just once, not just twice, but 12 times. 12 times he's tried to kill David up until this point in chapter 21. Saul tried to pin David to the wall by throwing a spear at David, and that was three different times. He sent David on dangerous missions, hoping the enemy would kill David and finish him off. He sent soldiers to attack and kill David in his sleep in his home. And when David fled town, Saul went after him four separate times, trying to arrest and then kill him. Things are so bad that when Saul realized his own son, Jonathan, was actually protecting David, Saul threw a spear at Jonathan, at his own son. Now, thankfully, Saul missed. We can learn by now he's not a very good aim, but last week, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 33, it says, Then Saul cast a spear at him, Jonathan, to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Jonathan finally realizes, you know what? Dad's not going to stop. He's going to keep at this. And so he warns David. And David left town again, fleeing for his life. And that's where we ended last week. And before we pick up today in chapter 21, I want us to consider that so far, up until this point, David has done nothing wrong. Think about that. God anointed David as the future king of Israel. God poured out His Spirit on young David. David was faithful in trusting God to deliver him from Goliath, and he's been trusting God as he's been leading the armies of Israel and serving a really weird king who wants to kill him but likes the success that he has as a military leader. And so David's just been faithful. And look at how David is rewarded for his obedience. His king has declared him an enemy. David has been condemned to death. And without food or weapons, David is now running for his life. We could say that David was in the center of God's will because he's being perfectly obedient so far. And yet, if you were David, 
if I were David, is this what you thought it would look like to be in the center of God's will? I don't think so. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sinful choices, and David's going to experience that later on. But here, David is suffering even though he's innocent. He's suffering because of King Saul's sin, and God allows it. In fact, God's going to use that suffering to test David's faith and to work on David's heart in ways that could not be accomplished without all these speed bumps and detours in the road. This is important for you and I because your first fill in the blank, it reminds us that being in God's will does not guarantee safety, comfort, or provision. Being in God's will does not guarantee those things, but God does guarantee His purpose, His presence, and His glory. You see, God allowed David to suffer, to test David's heart in new ways, and King Saul's paranoia and craziness, that became the crucible in which God would refine David's character. I wonder how often you and I, we pray and say, Lord, take us deeper in our walk with you. God, help us to be more like you. Draw us closer to you. And then when God begins to refine us through the fires of life, we say, whoa, Lord, that's not what I meant. I didn't want you to use that relationship to refine me. No, Lord, I didn't want you to use that situation to refine me. I want you to do the work, but I don't want it to hurt. No, the fires, don't use the fires of life. That's not what I wanted. I want you to use, you know, donuts and couches and like comfy things to refine me. But it doesn't work that way. And so we should trust God's plan and purpose even in the midst of our suffering. Not because the suffering is good, but because we know that God is good. However, I'm certainly not saying that we're extra spiritual if we seek out suffering. Notice that when Saul tried to kill David again and again and again, David fled. David didn't pick the spear up and yank it out of the wall and hand it back to Saul and said, here you go, you missed, and then stand there. David didn't do that. And you and I shouldn't seek out suffering. It's okay to avoid suffering if we can do so without sinning or compromising our faith. But when we can't escape suffering without sin, or we can't escape suffering without compromising, then we should trust God and rest in His strength to endure it. Now we pick up our story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In verses 1 through 6, we read about fear over faith. Verse 1, now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. So if you look at the map on the screen here, Nob is a city southeast of Gibeah, where Saul was, and northeast of Jerusalem. And at this time, this is where the tabernacle was, the place for Israel to worship God. This is before they built the temple, so this is the tent version of the temple. Last week, David fled to the prophet Samuel. Now, David flees to the tabernacle itself. And verse 1 continues and says, And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business. 
and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. So Ahimelech the priest, he doesn't know that Saul is trying to kill David. He doesn't know of all the fighting that's going on within the palace. But he's confused why the king's son-in-law, that's David, would be wandering around without a guard of soldiers. Why are you alone? And so David lies. David makes up a story saying he's on a secret mission for the king. Here we begin to see David's faith is shaken. Instead of trusting in God's power and God's promises, David is trusting in his own craftiness, his lie to get him some much-needed food on his escape. David's fear is not new. In fact, last week, we caught a glimpse of that fear in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3, when David said, there is but a step between me and death. Now remember, God anointed David and said, you will be the next king of Israel. And when David made this statement to his friend, Jonathan, the crown prince, Jonathan reminded him, no, David, remember, you will be the next king. You're not a step away from death. You're going to be the next king of Israel. God's going to fulfill his promise and his plan for you. But David was doubting God's promise. He was doubting God's plan. And so that fear popped up last week, but now we see that this fear is tempting David to doubt God's plan, God's power, and God's purpose. And that's your next fill in the blank. Fear tempts us to doubt God's plan, to doubt God's power, and to doubt God's purpose. And so because David doubted, he lied. Notice that David could have asked for bread and for help from Ahimelech the priest while telling the truth, but David didn't. David used sin to try and limit his suffering. He didn't want more people against him. And so there with the priest at the tabernacle, he says, well, I'm just on a secret mission and I left in a hurry and I really could use some food. So if you have anything, that would be great. But this lie is going to come back and hurt David later. Here's another fill in the blank. We often want to do what is easy. God wants us to do what is right. It's why Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The way is not narrow and difficult because God's made salvation elusive. No, the way is narrow and difficult because we have to deny our flesh, because we have to recognize that we're sinners and cry out to God in humility. Nobody wants to do that. It's far easier to just follow after our own heart. Just listen to Disney and you'll feel great. Follow after your heart. Do what you want to do. You do you. That's what's easy, but it's not what's right. Every time we choose to do what is right, instead of simply what's easy, we are expressing our love towards God. Every time we choose to honor God in this little detail, well, I'm going to tell the truth and not lie because God tells me not to lie. 
you're choosing in that moment to love God, to say, Lord, I care more about you than what the truth might bring in my life. I care more about you than trying to protect myself and my image. And so David continues now in verse 3. David says, Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels, excuse me, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So what this is talking about is there in the tabernacle where they would come to worship God, one of the duties of the priests is every Sabbath they would put 12 loaves of bread on a table outside of the Holy of Holies, but inside the holy place. There were the arrows pointing, there was this golden table, the table of the showbread. The 12 loaves represented each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and every week they'd put this fresh bread there as just an offering to the Lord. And after the week was up, the priest would put fresh bread there and take the old bread. And that old bread the priests would eat. And it was kind of a symbol of them having fellowship with God. This was God's bread. It's been in his house for a week. Now we get to eat it and just think about how God wants a relationship with us. So David's asking for bread, and the priest says, we don't have anything here, actually, except the show bread, the bread we removed today. And even though David was not a priest, even though he wasn't supposed to be able to eat this bread, they gave him the bread to eat because of his need. It's interesting that the Hebrew words translated showbread literally mean bread of faces or bread of presence. This bread was put in the presence of God, and it was to always be fresh. What a great reminder that God wants our time in his presence to always be fresh. You see, God wants us to seek him often. Because when we don't and we neglect that time with the Lord, we grow stale and hard. Now in verses 7 through 9, we read about David's misplaced confidence. Look with me at verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Now, pause right there because this is huge. Now, when we first read this, we're just like, okay, why are we throwing in this random guy? But we're going to find out next chapter that he plays a pretty big role. You see, while David's lying about what he's doing, lying about being on a secret mission from the king, one of Saul's men, Doeg, was there, and he's watching David. And he's listening to what David is saying. And David saw him. And I'm sure that the moment David and Doeg locked eyes, David's heart dropped. 
He felt the dread. You know that feeling when something terrible has happened and there's nothing you can do about it? That's what David felt in this moment because he knew right away, this guy is going to tell Saul everything. And I think it was at this moment where David had an opportunity to repent and say, all right, Ahimelech, the priests, you guys, here's the truth. I'm running for my life from King Saul because he's crazy. See that guy right there? He's one of Saul's friends. We're now all in danger. But David doesn't do that. David sees Doeg, but he doesn't do anything. He sticks with his plan. He sticks with his lie. And we'll read next week how this man does tell King Saul everything that has happened. It seems almost like he leaves out the part where David lies about why he was here. Because next week, when Saul hears that the priest gave David bread and supported him in fleeing, David thinks that all the priests must be in cahoots with David. They think, he thinks that the priests were on David's side. And so Saul, in his craziness, he takes the entire town of Nob and puts them to death. All the people, all the children, all 85 priests, he kills them all. You can see how low Saul is reaching. And after this happens, we read next week in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 22. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons in your father's house. I wonder how things would have been different if David humbled himself and told the truth, when he realizes, you know what, I'm putting you guys in danger. You need to know what's happening. Maybe things would have been different. Now, I'm certainly not saying that David is responsible for Saul's murders, but David recognizes that he didn't tell the truth, and he put them in danger, even if it was an accident. Our next fill in the blank Sin always hurts more people and causes more damage than we realize. I think David would have said, well, this is just a small lie. In some ways, I am on the king's business. I'm just running away from his business of trying to kill me. I'm going to justify this lie. I'm going to justify what I'm doing. And surely, I'm the next king of Israel, so surely God doesn't want me to let myself get killed, right? I mean, I'm doing the right thing in coming up with this story in defending myself. But really, at the end of the day, David was disobedient to the Lord, and he was only caring about himself, not others. And so now, back to our passage in verse 8. It says, And David said to Ahimelech, is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, Well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. David sticks with his lie, with his story, 
saying that, well, I was in such a hurry on this king's business that I forgot to bring any weapons. Do you have any here for me? And what should be the only weapon there in the tabernacle but the sword of Goliath? And David gains some confidence here, but I think for the wrong reasons. You see, David should have seen that sword and remembered the victory that God gave him that day. The day when David himself declared to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David goes on and says, Goliath, I'm going to kill you and your whole army, and the birds of the air are going to feast on your carcasses. And then David says in verse 47, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. David had great faith that day. He knew where his hope was. And yet now David's running from his king, King Saul. And he sees Goliath's sword. And when he sees it, does he say, oh, that's right. This is God's battle, not mine. God doesn't save by sword and spear, but by his own strength. No, David doesn't say that. David says, there is none like it. Give it to me. Now I have the biggest sword. I think David looks at that sword and he says, God is with me. He gave me the biggest sword of all. Now I can trust in this weapon. Now I'm confident that God is okay with the lie that I just told the priests because he just gave me the biggest sword. He's telling me everything's okay. He must be blessing me to show me that he's okay with my failures, that he approves of my sin. And David's so far off from the truth. This is one of those times in Scripture where you just want to reach down through the pages and slap him in the face and say, David, what are you thinking? And I wish sometimes when I'd open my own Bible, my Bible would slap me in the face because of the foolish things that I do. You see, David took this as a sign that he made the right choice. Never mind his sin, never mind his lies. And that's what we call over-spiritualizing a situation. This reminds us that just because an opportunity presents itself doesn't necessarily mean it is God's will. Just because an opportunity presents itself does not necessarily mean that is God's will. When we over-spiritualize a situation, we emphasize the mysterious. And we say, like David might have, well, what are the chances that the only sword here would be Goliath's sword? What are the chances that God would give me the biggest sword of all? Wow. God must be pr proud of me. He must approve of me. You see, we emphasize the mysterious and we neglect the clear teaching of God. It's over-spiritualizing a situation. Imagine that you're a student. And you realize, oh, it's test day, and I forgot to study. And so you're sitting down to flunk your test, and right as the test's about to start, you find the answer sheet. And you say, oh, it's the Lord. He's provided. 
Nope. It's a test. No pun intended. Don't give in to the temptation. God's not delivering you a way to cheat your way out of this test. Imagine you're a businessman and you cut corners and you fudge numbers and you take advantage of people, but you're making great money. Look at how God has provided for you. Surely your financial success proves God's okay with your life. Look at how He's blessed you. Everything's going so well. Surely God approves of who you are and what you have done, right? Wrong. Don't over-spiritualize it. We need to keep obeying God. God will never lead us to break His law through cheating, through taking advantage of others. David, however, takes the bait. He takes the sword of Goliath, and David calls it providence, not realizing that he's trusting in the wrong thing. He's trusting in the gift instead of the giver. And now he's got stale bread, and he's got a giant sword, and false confidence, and David moves forward. And in verses 10 through 15, he's seeking refuge in the world. Verse 10, then David arose and fled that day from before Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Pause right there. Gath is one of the capitals of the Philistines. David has now entered into enemy territory. And not only is he now trying to live among the Philistines, among the enemies of Israel, The Philistines were the enemies that had Goliath on their side, right? And not only that, but Gath is where Goliath was from. So David is walking into Gath, Goliath's hometown, holding Goliath's sword. Do you think he can hide that? Do you think it'll fit down the back of his shirt? And he's walking down Main Street, trying to blend in. Again, what are you thinking, David? Did he think, maybe he'd heard it said, well, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Maybe he heard that. Maybe he thought, well, I'm just going to blend in. Nobody knows who I am. Maybe he thought, well, this sword will give me the respect that I deserve, and the people here will respect me. Or maybe David just wasn't thinking at all beyond the fact that I'm pretty sure King Saul can't follow me here, so I should finally be safe living among the Philistines. Maybe that was his hope. Verse 11, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? You see, that top chart song has gone international. The Philistines know that song. And they recognize the thousands and ten thousands that David has slain in the song. Those are our brothers. Those are our Philistine soldiers. That's what the song's about. And David's right there. And he's holding Goliath's sword. Why are we letting him live among us? And they're going to their king saying, this is our enemy. Now, verse 12, David took these words to heart. And was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, 
and let his saliva fall down on his beard. David's so afraid of the king of Gath now that he gives all he has into this performance of pretending to be insane. He reminds me of like a rabies person. And he was so convincing that look at verse 14. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so the king buys it. And he says, I don't need this crazy guy. Get him out of here. And David escapes. And David flees. In the next chapter, David escapes from Gath and he begins to live in a cave. But we're not going to get there today. If the story ended here of David, we'd be pretty discouraged. We've seen David live in fear, fear of both King Saul and King Achish. We've seen David lie and put others in danger. We've seen David trust in earthly weapons and trying to blend in with the enemy. And it's a sad story. How discouraging that David used to be a man of faith, boldly trusting in God even when nobody else did. He was the only one that trusted God for victory on that day against Goliath, while the rest of Israel stood there shaking in their boots. David was filled with the Spirit. He was obeying the Lord, and yet now he's just a crazy man, drooling all over himself, scratching at doors. But the story doesn't end here. I encourage you to write down in your Bibles next to this passage, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, because David wrote these two psalms during this exact chapter in his life. And they give us a glimpse into David's heart. Today, we're going to look at a few verses in Psalm 34. And this week, in your life group homework, you're going to look at Psalm 56. So right now, let's look at some lessons from David's heart in Psalm 34. And we'll start in verse 1. You can feel free to flip there in your Bibles or the verses are on the screen for you. Psalm 34, verse 1. It says, a psalm of David, when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So the first part of this psalm gives us the background of where David was or what he was up to when he writes this. And now he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. This is his start of the psalm. And I think it's important that we notice that David says, I will bless the Lord. It's a determined action. David is purposing. He says, I will. I choose to do this. It's not something that's just going to happen without me thinking about it. I am going to determine to bless the Lord, to praise Him. Think about this. God is the creator of the universe. God has no lack. He has no need. And yet when you and I choose to worship him, to praise him, he's blessed by that. That doesn't quite make sense to me. And yet that's the type of relationship that God has with us. He's blessed when we worship him. 
even though he has no needs. David also says that he will bless the Lord at all times. Remember, David's not writing this while he's king of Israel, sitting in his palace on his nice couch eating grapes. No, he's writing this while he's drooling on himself, trying to pretend like a madman so that the enemy king, Achish, might think he's crazy and let him go for free because David knows his life is on the line. And he blew it. He made some dumb choices. And David says, even in my darkest moment, even at a time like this, I will choose to praise the Lord at all times. And that's your next fill in the blank. Our first lesson from David's heart, choose to praise God at all times. Even in the midst of our suffering, even before the storm is calmed, even when it seems like there is no hope, choose to praise the Lord. It will help you get your eyes off of what you're surrounded by. It will help you get your eyes out of the mirror, staring at yourself, saying, woe is me. It will help you get your eyes on the Lord. Worship Him. A few verses later in Psalm 34, verse 4, David says, I sought the Lord, and He heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. And then two verses later in verse 6, David says, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now, David says in the psalm that he's been delivered from all of his fears and saved out of all of his troubles. And yet, when we remember where he's at, he's, he's been rescued out of Gath, but now he's living in a cave. His king still wants to kill him. His king will still try to kill him for several more years. And yet David says, I've been delivered from all my fears, and God's fixed all of my problems, all my troubles. I don't think David was lying, but I do think David was recognizing what he could be thankful for, even in the midst of the place that he was in. When you're living in a cave with people trying to kill you, there's probably not much to be thankful for. But David found two things. Lord, you've delivered me from the king of Gath. And Lord, in the midst of that low point, in the midst of me trusting in my deceit and trusting in the sword of Goliath and trusting in my plans and disobeying you, when I cried out to you, you still heard me. Lord, you've rescued me from Gath and you've heard my cry. Those are two things that he can be thankful for while he's living in a cave. And for you and I, what a great encouragement for us. No matter how difficult our situation is, find reasons to thank God every day. Find reasons to thank God every day. David continues down in Psalm 34, verse 8. And he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. David is inviting you and me to trust in God. He calls us to trust in God. Think about this. We can experience incredible suffering without ever tasting and seeing the Lord is good. 
we can have the entire Bible memorized without ever tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. We can understand deep theology without ever tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Maybe you're listening to this right now, and you know all the right answers. You know what you need to do, but you're just not doing it. David says, stop running. David encourages us, stop trusting in yourself. Stop trying to do things your way. And look to the Lord and taste and see that He is good. God invites us to do that. We taste and see that He is good by trusting in His Word, by trusting in Him. Cry out to God, lean on Him, and see that He is good. This does not mean that God will calm every storm and fix every trouble in our life. In fact, David himself tells us in the very same psalm, Psalm 34, verse 19, he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Just take your Sharpie and blot that one out, right? No, it doesn't work that way. David says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. This is very similar to Jesus' promise in John chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus said to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You see, whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to experience troubles in this life. You're going to experience suffering and affliction. But for the Christian, for those that have trusted in Jesus, He has given us a future hope, eternal life in heaven with Him, where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears. Those are the old things, the former things. They've passed away. And in heaven, we're just going to be with Jesus perfect bodies, perfect relationships, fellowshipping with our perfect God. That's the hope that we have to look forward to. That's the hope that Jesus gives us. You see, our deliverance was accomplished at the cross. That's where Jesus accomplished salvation for you and for me. And you and I, we've received that deliverance the moment we put our faith in Jesus. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you can do so today. And the moment you do, you've received that gift of salvation. And yet, even though we've received it, we don't fully experience it until we're in heaven with Jesus. Yeah, we get little glimpses of His work in our life. We get glimpses of His work in changing our hearts and what He does in our relationship with Him now. But we don't fully experience His salvation until we are with Him in heaven for all eternity. In other words, the best is yet to come. So don't judge God's purpose until He's finished revealing it. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me. Because I see what I can see, and I say, Lord, I don't like it. Lord, this doesn't make sense to me. Lord, I think you might have, you know, I know you don't make mistakes, but you made a oops maybe. 
I don't think this is the best plan because all I can see is limited. I don't have all knowledge. I don't know the future, but God does. And I have to remind myself, I can't judge God's purpose in the midst of this. Yes, even this situation, this time in my life. I can't judge God's purpose until He's finished revealing it to me. And oftentimes, that's not going to be till we're there face to face. And what's kind of ironic is when we're there face to face, all the suffering that we experienced in this world, it's not even going to matter anymore. He's going to wipe it all away. Remember that God knows what He's doing, that He has a perfect plan, and He has perfect knowledge, and let that hope strengthen your faith today. Now, towards the end of Psalm 34, David tells us in verse 18, David says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite or crushed spirit. When David lied about being on a secret mission for the king, his his heart wasn't broken. When David trusted in Goliath's sword, his spirit wasn't crushed or contrite. Nor when David sought refuge among the Philistines, He wasn't broken and crushed because he still had hope in himself. He still had hope in his plans. But when the Philistines targeted him as a suspect and they said, I think we need to arrest this guy, suddenly David had no other ideas. David had nowhere else to run. And so he stopped putting hope in his own schemes or in the world and finally David lifts up a feeble cry to the Lord. I might venture to say that it was a pretty pathetic cry. Remember, he was drooling all over himself at the time. And he cries out to God. Did David deserve God's help? No. But David's heart was broken. His spirit was crushed. And David was finally looking to the only one who could fix his situation to the only one that mattered, to God. And that is what God was looking for. It was at that moment that God says, yes. That's what I wanted to teach you today in chapter 21. To stop looking within, to stop looking without, and just to look to me. Look to me. If I were God, I'm not sure I would have been so gracious. If David feebly cries out to me and says, God, save me, I might have said, look at what you did. Remember when you lied to the priests? I know it's going to cost them their lives in the next chapter. David, you've earned this. David, you've brought this upon yourself. I might have said, this is the work of your own hands. But God didn't say that. God wasn't done with David. And that's amazing news because he's not done with you or me either. Your last fill in the blank 
no matter how far we have strayed, God is not done with us. No matter how far I have strayed, God is not done with me. Don't focus on how great your failures are. Focus on how great God is. Rest in His mercy and grace. Let Him use us despite our faults. And let Him get all the glory. Trust in Him. You might be in a place right now where you've been trying really, really, really hard to trust in Goliath's sword. After all, what are the chances that God would allow this in my life or bring this thing into my life? Maybe you're trusting in your own schemes. No, no, I've got it covered. I know it's going to be okay because I've got a plan. I encourage you and challenge you to lift up your feeble, pathetic cry out to God. And if your heart is trusting in Him, not in anything else, if your spirit is crushed and you say, Lord, you're my only hope, that's when God says, that's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. That I can work with. Because now you're finally trusting in me. Not just with your words, but with your heart. And amazingly, graciously, mercifully, God will meet us where we're at. And we'll realize that through all this junk that we've been going through because of our own mistakes and because of the sins of others, God's walked with us through it all. But only now do we realize that He truly loves us. Only now do we truly understand how deep His grace is. You see, it's because He went to the cross to pay for our sin that He can now come to us in our brokenness and say, hey, I can fix this because I've already paid the debt. I've already done the work. All you need to do is to look to me. If you haven't looked to Christ for salvation yet, don't put it off. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. But I know for most of us here and listening online, we've already made that decision. And may we be encouraged to every day taste and see that the Lord is good, to trust in His Word, to trust in His promises, and not get sidetracked by the mess that's around us. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for Your deep love for us, the love that You proved when You came down and You died on the cross in our place. God, I thank you that your love for us is not only in words, but your love is proved through your actions. Lord, your love is proved through your patience for us in waiting for us to finally look up to you. God, we're so grateful for this story about David making his first mistakes. Lord, we know the story. These are not his last mistakes. And yet, Lord, you still used David. And man, did he mess it up. And Lord, we're so grateful that in our own lives, we've messed a lot of things up. And yet, Lord, you can still take us where we're at right now. God, you can take us with the baggage that we have created for ourselves. And God, you can still use us. 
for Your glory and for Your name. God, You can still change us from the inside out, and God, You can turn our lives into a testimony of Your goodness and of Your plan and of Your purpose. God, I pray for anybody today who is just feeling broken. God, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would comfort them. God, that You would meet them where they are at and that You would show them that You can give them hope. God, that this suffering will not last forever. God, that you can work in spite of what they're going through. Lord, would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit? Would you give us the strength that we need to fix our eyes on you, to trust in you, even in the midst of our circumstances? God, use us for your kingdom. And God, help us to live for you until we are there with you face to face in heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.